Over the past several months, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And while we're not going to cut that series short, we are going to take a break for a little bit um, to walk through a couple of different series. The one we're going to start this morning is actually on Advent. Um, And if you're anything like me, you know that Advent is this time of the year. Maybe you know that it's the the Sundays leading up to and the, the Sunday of or after Christmas. But you have no idea why it's specifically called Advent. Like you have no idea where that word came from. I looked it up. The actual definition of the word is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And I think we can all connect the dots. But just in case... We don't celebrate Advent because Santa Claus is coming to town. We celebrate Advent as Christians during Christmas because of the arrival of Christ into the world. And in this series specifically, we will be looking at different miraculous births that we see in Scripture. Not just Christ's arrival, but the arrival of others that God chose to use in his sovereign, ultimate plan to redeem mankind. We'll see how God worked in his sovereign power to miraculously bring about these babies, starting with Isaac and then moving to people like Samuel and John the Baptist. And then finally, we'll see Jesus. But this morning, we're not going to be looking at one specific birth story in Scripture. Rather, the hope is that we're going to see the reality that all Scripture's primary purpose is to point us to Jesus. Without this reality, it might be really, really awkward to walk through a whole month just talking about babies being born. But with this reality, not only does it make the births that we see in the Old Testament beautiful, it makes every single page of Scripture precious because it all draws us closer to Jesus and creates within us a heart that wants nothing more than to worship at the foot of our King. With that being said... My goal this morning is to reveal through the scriptures how all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And it's my prayer that each of us leave today more equipped to see the glory of Christ in scripture and for each of us to find ourselves in awe of our Lord and Savior. The truth that all of scripture is pointing to Jesus is actually one that Jesus himself taught. In John 5 and Luke 24, we can see this teaching play out. And while we'll be bouncing around in a lot of different scriptures today, this is where we'll start. In John 5, John tells us that at this time, the Jews developed a really, really strong desire to kill Jesus because of who he said he was and what he had done. And if you look at Jesus' response in the scope of the whole account, it's actually pretty radical. The Jews say, we want to kill Jesus because he's claiming that he is equal with God. And rather than denying this truth, Jesus expounds on it and says that that he's come to fulfill the father's will. The father has sent him so that he can accomplish the father's will. But in this response specifically, Jesus reveals the truth that we're going to be focusing on this morning. John 5 verses 39 and 40 say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These two verses are very simple and very self-explanatory. But let's remember that Jesus here is talking to Jews. And the only scriptures that have been written so far is the Old Testament. So there's no doubt that Jesus is saying all those stories, all those things in the Old Testament that we see are about him. And even more so, he says, you think that these words are what give you life. But that's not it. These words point you to the person who does, which is Christ. And in this moment, 
Jesus is giving a premise that when we look at the scriptures, Jesus should be what we see always. And if we don't, we are desperately missing the point. We actually see Jesus play out this teaching at the end of Luke. In Luke 24, we can see Christ's encounter with two apostles who were followers of Jesus right after Jesus rose from the dead. And scripture says that as they encounter Jesus, their eyes are kept from being able to recognize him. So think about this for a moment. These men meet who are followers of Jesus, meet Jesus. And to him, to them, he is a mere stranger. But in reality, he has just risen from the dead. And Luke 24, verse 17, we'll pick up. I just want to encourage you to stand together with me to honor God's word. We, we want to do this with our bodies to signify that what Christ's word says is Millions of times more valuable than anything else that will be said this morning. But starting in Luke 24, verse 17, the scripture says, and he and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Father, be with us now as we dive into your word. Allow us to see the beauty and the glory of Christ through all of scripture this morning. We pray these things in his holy, powerful name. Amen. So from the outside looking in this passage, we see a pretty ironic encounter. These individuals are expressing their sadness about Jesus, who was supposed to raise from the dead to Jesus, who has risen from the dead without knowing that he's the one that they're talking to. However, in all this irony, Jesus saw this encounter as a perfect teaching moment. In verse 25, while they still have no idea who Jesus is, he says some pretty sharp words. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then the scripture says, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time, that beginning with Moses, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus shows them through the scriptures that he, in fact, was the promised Messiah who would redeem Israel. Now, practically speaking, we can't walk through all of Scripture this morning and see how it all points to Jesus. 
And we logically can't know exactly what Jesus said in order to pick out the highlights. But today we'll hopefully be able to get a general idea of how to read scripture in a way that points us to the majesty of Jesus. And in order to do that, we're going to answer two questions. Number one, how does the Old Testament point to Jesus? How does the Old Testament point to Jesus? And number two, what does the Old Testament say about Jesus? What does the Old Testament say about Jesus? Before we dive in, I want to give a little disclaimer. This is not an all-encompassing formula for how to read Scripture. but Rather, it's a general guide that helps us as we seek to see Christ in the glory that He deserves as we read the Word of God. And this is something we should remember and cling to throughout the rest of our lives, but especially as we dig into miraculous verse this month. Because these verses that we're going to be looking at themselves actually point us to Jesus some way in all of these ways. So with that being said, the first question again is how does the Old Testament point to Jesus? In order to answer this, I'm going to give three ways and examples that were pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament writings. The first way we see Jesus through Scripture is historically. Historically. What I mean by this is that the Bible can be historically proven true. It is historically accurate. And therefore, the genealogy of Christ and all the events that happen in thousands and thousands of years leading up to Christ are historically accurate and happen so that Jesus could come. I remember when I was younger, I don't know if anyone else can attest to this, I may just be outing myself. But anytime I heard of a country or a place or a thing or like a sea or something like that in the Bible or a pastor talking about it that was still around today that I was familiar with, it just absolutely blew my mind. Like I was I was absolutely blown away at that reality because in my head, the Bible was a fairy tale from some far off land and not the history of the earth that we live in today. And if you think about it, there are some pretty crazy, crazy stories in Scripture. Noah and the Ark, for example, like we talk about it all the time. But let's really take a second and think about how crazy this story is. Noah is a man who takes 120 years to build a gigantic boat. Not only does he build this boat, he puts every single animal on the face of the earth in this boat along with his family. And then some flood comes and the whole earth is covered in water and every person and every creature dies except for the people and the animals who were on that boat. That is a radical, crazy story. And we could go on and on with so many different things from a man surviving overnight in a den of hungry lions to a man who receives his strength from his hair to a whole sea parting so the Israelites could escape slavery. Like we could go on and on and on. But sometimes in all the crazy stories of Scripture, I think we can get lost in them. And we must always remember that these crazy things actually happened. And it's not our job to scientifically prove that they're true, but rather to allow these events to cause us to worship in our God's sovereign power. But simply knowing that the events of the Old Testament are true is step one. Seeing how they all point us to Christ is step two. And while it would be great to dissect all of this, we simply don't have time. But I think a great showcase of Uh, history pointing to Jesus is in Matthew 1 looking at his genealogy 
I know this series is on miraculous births, like the, the miracle of these births. Let's just look historically for a second at how God sovereignly ordained all things to happen as they did in order to create the lineage of Jesus and to fulfill his promises to his people. Looking at Matthew 1, we'll read through verse, from verse 1 through verse 17. And I'll just warn you in advance, bear with me, because this might not be pretty. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to, ba- uh, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I can guarantee you if we read that again, every name would be pronounced differently. (laughs) But if you think about it, you might be asking yourself the question, why in the heck did we just read a list of 42 names and waste five minutes of our time? But think just for a moment about how crazy this really, really is. In these lists of 42 names is thousands and thousands of years of different things happening. Different kings and kingdoms, wars, sin. Slavery, idolatry, adultery, murder, wrath, sacrifice, and redemption. And the reality of it is, every single event, every single person, and every single moment of history that we see in Matthew 1 and in all of the Old Testament was sovereignly used by God to lead us to Jesus. Everything that happens from a man who commits adultery gets this woman pregnant and then kills her husband so that it doesn't look bad on him, happens so that Jesus would come in the lineage that was required. And as we read the Old Testament, we can see how all the scriptures are meant to historically point us to the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Historically. The next way we see Jesus through the Old Testament is prophetically. I'm sure many of you are familiar with with this term, but a prophecy in Scripture was something about the future foretold. And it was typically given by God 
through the voice of his prophets. And throughout the Old Testament, there were many different prophecies spoken. And while there were many different prophecies about many different things, the greatest way prophecy was used was to foretell about the coming of Jesus. Whether he was referred to as the king, the Messiah, the savior of the world or anything else, he was prophesied about from many people to many people. And actually, much of Jesus proving that he was, in fact, God's son and the savior of the world was through how he fulfilled the many prophecies about him in the Old Testament. And again, as much as I would love to walk through every single one of those, we simply don't have time. But one prophecy from God that we see fulfilled in Christ was given to Abraham at the birth of his son, Isaac. We won't spend too much time here because we will dig deeper in this story next week. But look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. After Abraham's arm is literally stopped as he's about to sacrifice his son to God, his promised son to God, God delivers this great promise to Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. At first glance, this may not seem like very much. But when we look at passages and and prophetic promises like this with gospel glasses on, we can see so clearly that this promise is pointing to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. If we look back at the lineage of Abraham, thinking back to Matthew 1, we won't read it again. We can see that over 42 generations, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And Jesus is how the offspring of Abraham will be multiplied to become greater than the stars of the sky and greater than the sand of grain, the grains of sand on earth. Because through Jesus, anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be grafted into the family of God. This prophetic promise is fulfilled in Jesus because of his redemptive work on the cross. We are saved and become descendants of Abraham. And this isn't new to any of us. We sing a nursery rhyme to our kids centered around this fulfilled prophecy. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham and I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I can't sing or else I would have done it better. Justin would have knocked that out of the park. Um, But the reality of it is, it's kind of funny because it's a simple nursery rhyme, but we can learn so much from this. Seeing how God fulfilled prophecy through Jesus should create in us a heart of worship for our sovereign, never changing, promise keeping king. And just as Jesus is the fulfillment of this single prophecy here, we see him as a direct fulfillment of literally hundreds of other prophecies over the course of the whole Old Testament. And through prophecy, we are appointed to Jesus. The final way we see Jesus through scripture, and this is probably the most foreign to us, is typologically. Okay, typologically, it's not as scary as it sounds. So don't check out. It's not that bad. It seems like a fancy word with a really big definition, but it's really, really not. The root word here is typology, typology, which by definition means that there are symbols foreshadowing or objects that represent something else. 
And as far as it relates to the Bible, when we talk about typology, you'd hear it be called types of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that there are many different Jesuses or that there are many different ways to be saved, but rather that Jesus can be seen and is represented by many things throughout the whole scope of Scripture. Jesus can be seen and is represented by many things throughout the whole scope of Scripture. The easiest and most well-known example of this is Noah and the Ark. If you haven't heard it preached, you, you will now. Um, in the same way God's wrath was poured out on wicked sinners then, His wrath will be poured out finally, eternally, and completely on us wicked sinners at Christ's return. However, in the same way that God used the ark to save Noah and his family, God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, die the death that we deserve, and to rise again so that if we trust in him with full faith, we will be saved from the coming condemnation to us. In this case, Jesus is represented by the ark. Does that make sense? Jesus is represented by the ark. However, we must be extremely careful because in this we can get lost in the typology, but we can't. We got to remember scripture is not allegory. Okay, scripture is not allegory. Remember, scripture historically points us to Jesus just as much as it uh, typologically points us to Jesus. And God, working in his infinite wisdom and power, has used historical true events to point us to the coming salvation that we have in Christ. And church, we literally see so much of this in the Bible. I'll allude to one more example in Exodus 14 in the life of Moses. After his roller coaster of a life up to this point, absolute roller coaster, Moses is finally leading the people of God out of slavery to the Egyptians. And they find themselves running from the Egyptians in a situation where it seems that all hope is lost. Look with me in Exodus 14, starting in verse 10. Scripture says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind him, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind 
all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Again, this is another incredible story in Scripture that should literally make our jaw drop. Moses literally, literally leads the people across the Red Sea as it splits in half for them. Like that is mind blowing to think about. At the time of their crossing, historians believe that they literally walked anywhere from 111 to 230 miles. So they walked anywhere from 100 to 200 miles on dry ground with two walls of water like an aquarium beside them because God used Moses to split it. Like this is an incredible story that puts the power of God to save the people of Israel on display. But it doesn't stop there. And this is where we often cut the story off and sell ourselves short. See, the beauty of Christ on display here is that as Moses saved the people of God from slavery to the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea so that they could cross, Jesus saves us from slavery to our sin by rising from the dead victorious over the grave after being punished for our sin on the cross. I'll say it again. As Moses saved the people of God from slavery to the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea so they could cross, Jesus saves us from slavery to our sin by rising from the dead victorious over the grave after being punished for our sin on the cross. This is what typology is. Seeing how the gospel of Jesus is put on display through how God worked through different things and people over the course of history. Does that make sense? And seeing Jesus through all of Scripture, typologically, historically, and prophetically, should create in us a heart of worship and awe for our Savior and for our King. So all of that is our answer to the first question. How does the Old Testament point to Jesus? But now I'll say a couple of minutes, won't be quite as long, and answer the question, what does the Old Testament say about Jesus. And again, let me remind you, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just some major ways that we see Christ historically, prophetically, and typologically through the lens of the Old Testament. We'll walk through these pretty quickly, so I want to challenge you to lock in and track as best as you can as we look at eight major ways the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And as we look at them, I want to encourage you to meditate on these truths And allow them to create in you a heart of worship for King Jesus. Diving right in. Number one, Jesus is heir to the throne. H-E-I-R, heir to the throne. In 2 Samuel 7, as God is talking to David, he makes this promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God prophetically promises here that David's offspring will soon be a king who reigns forever. And that offspring, looking at Matthew 1, is Jesus. Number two, Jesus is born miraculously. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, 
I think this is another example of scripture where we don't feel the weight of what this is saying. Like this virgin is going to bear a son and call his name God with us. This is crucial because it means that Jesus is not formed of the seed of Adam. So that Jesus is not born in sin like the rest of us and the rest of mankind, but rather he is born blameless with the ability to live a righteous, upright life. And he did just that on our behalf. And it was prophesied about over 400 years before he came. Number three, Jesus is healer of the broken. Healer of the broken. Isaiah 61, one through two says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Here we see Isaiah elaborating on what the Lord is doing in him. But in Isaiah's description of himself, we see Jesus. Isaiah is a man who's bringing the good news. Jesus is the God man who is the good news. Isaiah is a man who's bringing liberty to the captives. Jesus is a God man who is liberty for the captives. And in all this, we see that Jesus is the strength for the weak and Jesus is the healer of the broken. Number four, Jesus is rejected by man. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah is literally prophesying about Jesus. And we'll look at the other verses in a moment. But look at what he says here in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was a loving, holy, gracious Messiah who came to save. And he's rejected by the very ones who read the same thing we're reading and refused to go to him. Rejected by the very ones who were waiting on him to come. But we knew it would happen because Isaiah told us so. Number five, Jesus is betrayed by his own. Psalm 41, nine says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Again, in this situation, it doesn't seem like Jesus is being referred to at all. But the betrayal of David, as he's writing, is meant to point us to the ultimate betrayal of Christ by Judas. A man who walked with Jesus and saw who he was, saw what he did, yet was still blinded so much so that when money was offered, he betrayed the one that he claimed to love and that he had walked with for three years. And we see this small, seemingly um, small detail on display, even in the Psalms. Number six, Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. Again, going back to Isaiah 53, let's look for a second at how Isaiah describes the punishment that Christ endures. Before we do that, I want to ask this, may seem a little odd, but I want everybody to just close your eyes and listen as I read about the suffering and the punishment of Christ that Isaiah the prophet foretold us about. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's nothing more that I can really say to add to or magnify the beauty of this reality that Isaiah gives us. We are wicked, wicked sinners against a holy, righteous God who are deserving of his full wrath. But in great love for us, Christ took that wrath as his own. He was beaten, he was pierced, and he was crushed by the Father so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. There is truly no greater news. Number seven, Jesus has risen from the dead. Not only do we see him suffer, we see him rise. In Matthew 12, we see Jesus himself referencing back to Jonah, showing how even in the life and story of Jonah, Christ was on display. Matthew 12, 40 says, For just as Jonah was three, di- three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as Jonah was swallowed by a fish for his disobedience and spit up due to his repentance, Jesus was swallowed by the earth as the lamb receiving the full punishment for sin. And he rose from the dead as the lion proving his victory over the grave. Number eight. Finally, Jesus is king for eternity. He's king for eternity. This is the truth that we cling to as our hope forever. And long before Jesus even came, it can be seen in the Old Testament all over the place. Look at what Daniel 2.44 says. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Not only was Jesus sacrificed for our sin, he will reign as our king for all eternity and we will worship him forever. Church, I want to challenge you this morning to let these truths marinate in your soul and to create an overwhelming awe and worship for our savior and for our king. And as you sit in awe and worship of our king, Be reminded of the reality that all of these truths and all these things that we see were pulled straight 
from the Old Testament, straight from the Old Testament, and they are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. God sovereignly used scripture written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to point us to the Savior. Why? Because Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is the center of it all. It's all about Jesus and it always will be. God is using all of history and all of scripture to draw all people to see the glory and beauty of Christ. And whether you know it or not, your life is being used to point to Jesus because God is sovereign. Whether you know it or want it or not, it's happening. Because Jesus is the center of it all. It's all for him. Everything is for him. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. So as we go this morning, I want to encourage you in one major way. Whether we're walking through this Advent series or you're reading the Old Testament, reading the New Testament or walking through the daily steps of your life or anything. I want to encourage you with this. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus in all things. Be reminded of the beautiful picture of the gospel and of what Jesus did to save your soul. And worship him. He is a God of love, yet he was hated by many. He is a God of peace, yet he was persecuted by his oppressors. He is a God of hope, yet he became hopeless as he hung on the cross. He is a God of healing, yet he was pierced for our transgressions. And he is a God who was defeated, yet he rose victorious over the grave. This is our Savior, and this is our King. So let's worship him together this morning.